Good. Sit down. So we've got two scriptures today, and uh, we'll start with uh, the one that's in the back of the Bible and work our way towards the front of the Bible. Uh, go, turn to Ephesians 1, and we're just isolating that one verse in Ephesians 1 and verse 13. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, let's go back to the book of Acts, and let's read a little story that might teach us something about that. Acts chapter 4, or chapter 8 rather, and verse 4. So just to set the, the scenes here, Christ has risen, Pentecost has happened, people are getting saved, and uh, the church is growing, and uh, Saul has uh, not yet become the Apostle Paul, and he hates Jesus, and he hates the church, and he's arresting people, and house to house dragging men and women off to prison. And so the people of God flee. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and had amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing great signs, or seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages 
of the Samaritans. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. We confess and believe that your word is alive, it's active, it's sharp, and it divides us, it cuts us right down the middle, it, it cleaves off the parts of us that are sanctified and cleaves off the parts that are sinful and says, now deal with the sin. It is to your word that we look, empowered by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we uh, continue this week looking at the issue of the sealing of the Spirit, uh, as it is called in Ephesians 1.13, or the baptism of the Spirit, as it's called in Acts chapter 1, which is, I believe, simply another name for the same phenomena. Um, and I, I say that in part because uh, one of the things that the Scriptures talk about when they talk about baptism is that it's a sign and a seal. And so the sealing of the Spirit is simply that act of God um, graciously working through the baptism of the Spirit. And we, we took as our example last week uh, for this issue of uh, the spiritual life of Peter as it's described in the Gospels and then at the beginning of the book of Acts. And we saw that Peter's life showed evidence of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit at three distinct points in the gospel record. More, really, but three distinct ones. First, when he became a disciple of Jesus after that miraculous catch of fish, um, he fell at Jesus' feet and he declared him to be Lord and he confessed to his own sinfulness and his own unworthiness. And then when Jesus called him and said, follow me, he responded to that call of Christ to a life of discipleship and obedience. No, no man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. So the Holy Spirit had to be there working in that process. Secondly, Peter confessed uh, when asked, you are the Christ, the son of the living God in Matthew 16. And Jesus says, Simon Barjona, you are blessed in that the Father in heaven, no flesh revealed this to you, but the Father in heaven revealed this to you. And we noted that the Father must have revealed it to Peter secretly and inwardly by the ministry of the Holy Spirit because the Father only spoke directly to Peter one time, and that was on the Mount of Transfiguration when the voice shook the heavens and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. But that hadn't happened yet. Thirdly, on the evening of that first Easter Sunday, uh, when Peter and the other disciples were locked away for fear of the Jews, the risen Jesus appeared, he greeted them, and then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's John 20 and verse 22. In the parallel passage in Luke 24, we see, I believe, what that impartation of the Holy Spirit was meant to accomplish in there. Because Luke tells us that the risen Jesus, quote, opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Now, you cannot, you can understand the words on the page with natural eyes, but you've got to have spiritual eyes to really understand the scriptures, for them to speak into your life and for them to transform you. And when we talk about the scriptures at this point, it's the Old Testament scriptures because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. 
and wouldn't be completed for about another 60 years. And in particular, it says, Jesus showed them how the Old Testament scriptures spoke of him so that they could use those scriptures to show the Jewish people that Jesus was the, was the Christ. But Peter still needed something else from the Holy Spirit. He needed power so that he could accomplish the task that Jesus gave him and the other disciples. Now, that task was to be his witnesses, and he, he, he was very specific, and you see the book of Acts is very specific about how that worked out. He said, you're going to be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem and Judea, which is the countryside around Jerusalem, and Samaria, which is the next kind of place, and then unto the ends of the earth. And Jesus told them to wait for that power to come from on high while they were in Jerusalem. He said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, Jesus taught his disciples on earth for 40 days after that resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven. And 10 days later, on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down upon them and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, I mentioned before that this issue is sometimes a contentious issue in the modern church. And I've come to believe that the reason for the controversy is that there is a ditch on the left side of the road and there's a ditch on the right. And I don't want us to fall into either ditch. But there are also sincere Christians who are occupying both ditches. And their particular ditch has become quite comfortable for them. It's homey. They love their ditch, it's a safe place. They ended up in their ditch, probably because they were determined to avoid the ditch on the opposite side of the road. And so they spend a great deal of time warning us about the dangers and perils of that other ditch over there on, their side of the, on that side of the road. And my goal is hopefully to keep us out of either ditch. So I'm gonna lay out for us the scriptural rationale for teaching as I do. I'm gonna let you examine it for yourself. I'm gonna let you make your own decision to decide whether you think I'm right or I'm out to lunch and you, I, that's up to you. And uh, you can accept it or agree with it or disagree with it. Now, one of the things I'm gonna be doing today is something that sometimes makes people nervous. I'm gonna be talking about what other churches or other theologians or individuals believe and teach and then disagreeing with it. Some people get very nervous when that happens. Are you saying they're not saved? No. Are you saying they're not a good Christian? No. I'm saying they're mistaken. And uh, that doesn't mean that we don't esteem them. It doesn't mean we don't have anything to learn from them. It's just on these issues, I wish to hold up certain things that I think are, are probably mistakes. And we have mistakes too. And somebody, I'm sure, will point them out to me. People are good at pointing out my mistakes. And so if you, if, if you want to straighten me out later, go, go right ahead. I want to be straight. Okay, but for, for now, I get to talk, and then we can talk about my mistakes later. Okay? So my goal, is, as, as I said, is to keep us out of either ditch, and I'm going to lay out the scriptural rationale for that. On the one side of the ditch, of the road rather, are Christians who are very skeptical of this idea that there is a second work of the Holy Spirit that comes after conversion. They would, not a definitive work anyway. They would say certainly there's many activities of the Holy Spirit. You know, he comes in measure. You know, he empowers us for certain things perhaps or we're close to him and so we have more of a feeling of his presence and power and then we kind of drift away and we have less. They, they were, they're not denying that. They would say there is no experience to which you ought to look 
that's a definitive experience that will make a big difference in your life. They just, they just flat out deny that, okay? They, they don't want you to think that there is a work of the Holy Spirit that comes after conversion at a point in time and instantly grants you some kind of power to live a more authentic and Christ-like life. And the primary reason they're skeptical, I think, has less to do with searching the scriptures and more to do with responding to the real errors in the teaching of some of those who do believe that. Now, a, a version of this doctrine of the, the second work of the Holy Spirit was taught by several prominent Puritan pastors and scholars in the 1600s, uh, men whose books you will find in my office, like John Flavel and Thomas Goodwin and Richard Baxter, and I read all of those men with great joy and great profit, and when they taught it, it didn't seem to be any big deal. Almost nobody criticized it, and almost all of those men were staunch Calvinists. But then we have this kind of gap in history of about 100 years, and the next major figure to propound this doctrine, that there's a second work of the Holy Spirit that immediately makes a difference in your life, was John Wesley and the early Methodist movement. Now, I happen to agree with Wesley that there is a second work of the Holy Spirit, where Wesley and I and the Reformed tradition in general disagree is what happens after that work. And Wesley, I think, made two errors. First of all, early on, initially, he taught that a person couldn't be saved without this subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit. And he changed his mind later and kind of retracted that. But early on, he was quite clear that if this hasn't happened to you, then you're not saved at all. The second thing Wesley claimed was that the sealing of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit produced a state that he called Christian perfection, instantaneously, entire sanctification. And he even wrote a tract, it, it was based on a sermon that he gave, called, quote, a plain account of Christian perfection. Now, by perfection, what Wesley meant was that a person who was baptized or sealed with the Holy Spirit would be brought instantly into a state where he did not knowingly, willingly commit sin anymore. He allowed for sins committed in ignorance. He allowed for sins resulting from a mistake or a sin that might result from some kind of bodily infirmity. You know, if you, if you have a, a, a brain tumor and it changes your behavior or you get Alzheimer and, and it changes your behavior, you're not responsible for those changes in behavior. Those aren't sins of the soul. That's just the body bearing down on the soul. Wesley said that wouldn't destroy Christian perfection. So I've got, the, I've got slides, and, I, and so I, I tried to, di to diagram this. So we have, you believe savingly, and then you've got kind of, you're bumping along a little bit, but you're really not making a lot of progress, and then you get to this second work of grace, and boop, and then perfection. Evangelical Christian perfection, where you don't knowingly, willfully sin anymore. And uh, Wesley was sharply challenged on that. And, uh, and I think rightly so. I don't believe that this is true. It certainly wasn't true for the apostle Peter, was it? I mean, there's no doubt he had this experience, right? He was baptized with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues and did all those things that he was supposed to do. And, and did Peter from then on live a sinless life? 
No. Now, one of the things we know about Peter, and I, this is why I love Peter, because I understand him. Peter's, one of Peter's besetting sins was fear of men, was fear of human beings and what they could do to him. And, uh, and, and that's why uh, even a little slave girl asking him, a servant girl asking him, uh, hey, you were with Jesus, weren't you? Terrified him to the point where he denied Christ three times. But that was all in the past, right? Here comes the Holy Ghost. Peter's baptized in the Holy Spirit. Do we see sinless perfection from then on out? Turn to Galatians chapter 2, and we'll see if we see sinless perfection in Peter after that. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. This is Apostle Paul writing to the Galatians. He's fit to be tied because they're doing a bunch of dumb stuff and believing a bunch of dumb stuff that's really hurting them. And, and Paul talks about his concern for them and how they came to Christ and how they need to not go back to these things that they're leaning on. They need to lean on Jesus. And then uh, Galatians 2 and verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, Kepha, Rocky, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. There's those doctrine cops again, those self-appointed doctrine cops that we talked about a few weeks ago. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter fell into error and misled others because he was afraid of what other people would say about him back home in Jerusalem. That's a sin. Now that event took place eight to ten years after Peter was baptized in the Holy Spirit. So if Peter didn't experience perfection, and I think I can show you places in the scripture where Paul says he didn't experience perfection, if those guys can't do it, what, what chance do you and I have? I, I, I will always remember, I, 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 uh, when I was very young, hearing a, a pastor tell the story of a revivalist who believed in this, uh, coming uh, to, to a church and preaching and then afterwards he was speaking with people in the front of the church and the man's wife was there and uh, he's talking to this guy face to face and the wife is back here and he says you know I haven't sinned in over 20 years and the guy looks over his shoulder and here's his wife going mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah so and the wife ought to know you're exactly right you want to know how bad I am ask my wife all right Wesley was correct about a second work of the Holy Spirit. I think he was wrong about the results of it. And yet God mightily used him and he mightily used the early Methodist movement. We wouldn't have had a, a first great awakening without Wesley. He was a great man of God, but he was not infallible. Next, we have another movement that came up in the 19th century in about 1875 or so called the Keswick Movement. We should have a Keswick slide here. Now it's spelled Keswick, but because it's England, they can't use all the letters, and so they just say it, Keswick. And so here's, here's their, now these guys were, did not all speak with one voice, and there were better ones and worse ones. I'm giving you one of the worst ones, Trumbull is his name. You believe on the Lord Jesus, and you're saved. But there is no sanctification going on. You're really not changing at all. Any changes are merely natural, all right? 
And then you get to a crisis point where you go, why am I not being changed? And Trumbull said that is the point at which God gives you as a gift sanctification. And he just like, here, puts it on your chest like a present and says, there's sanctification, enjoy. And that happens at the moment where Trumbull said, you let go and let God. In other words, don't try, don't make any effort. And you might have heard teachers, other teachers, Charles Stanley got caught up in this in the 80s and 90s. I don't know if he still is. But you might have heard teachers say, don't try to fight with sin. Just let go and let God. Well, you know what that is? That's a, that's a way to get run over by sin. Oh, well, if you just abide, the sin will all go away. So you spend all your time trying to abide. And, and, and he said, once that happens, then you'll get a place where you're sanctified. And, and some of them said there was growth and some of them didn't. Some of them argued for Wesley's perfection. Some of them didn't. But, but you see there, you're not sanctified. Now you are sanctified. Um, this came up in the village of Keswick, England. It was a summer theology thing, a Bible conference. It still goes on today, although they've changed a lot of their theology, and the story of that is interesting. In the 1950s, John Stott went in there and just started preaching and basically undid this whole theology right in front of their eyes in about three sermons. And they were like, oh, I guess we've got to change our whole reason to exist. And so they became a lot more biblical. And you know, Alistair Begg goes and preaches there regularly. It still takes place today. My problem with that is not that I don't believe that there is a definitive experience that changes you, it's, first of all, that sanctification is not an experience, it's a process. The Bible talks about sanctification everywhere as a process. Let me give you an example. Hebrews 10, 14, by one sacrifice, he, that is Jesus, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You got the, the perfection of justification. You believed, your sins are forgiven. If you died right now, you go to heaven just like you were perfect. But you've got this process of being made holy. Okay, and there are other scriptures I could point to. But uh, I, I don't think, and I, and I also think it's a great mistake to tell people that you're not going to have to wrestle with your sin. You are going to have to wrestle with your sin. Okay, so whatever we receive there, which I believe we receive it, let's not call it sanctification. That's a great error, or it can be. The third group I want to tell you about that holds some kind of view like this are the Pentecostals. And we've got another slide uh, for the Pentecostals. And um, my views are actually only out of accord with them on one issue, really. Uh, the third group who holds this view are the Pentecostals who make the baptism of the Holy Spirit an event which does turbocharge obedience. They don't necessarily say that it results in perfection or entire sanctification. But they, they make tongues, as it is practiced today, the infallible sign that this has taken place. So you have, you have here, you're born again, and the Holy Spirit's present in your life, and you are being sanctified, but you're not making a huge amount of growth. And then the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes, and tongues are absolutely necessary, and then you are turbocharged in your obedience. Now, I've got another slide here that comes directly from the Assemblies of God's website. Can we put that next one up, please, initial evidence? Keep going. This is what they say. The baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. And they specifically quote Acts chapter 2 and verse 3. Now there's two things I have to say to that. Uh, number one, 
we saw last week and we see in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that this issue of tongues, which with the Corinthian church was very divisive, as it is often in the church today. And Paul clearly says, does everyone speak in tongues? And the answer clearly is no. And yet they all, he lifts all these gifts. There's apostleship, there's evangelism, there's administration, there's gifts of help. And, and then he puts like tongues and interpretation dead last. And he says, does everybody speak in tongues? Answer, no. Is there anything wrong with that? Answer, absolutely not. The same spirit gives a diversity of gifts to a diversity of people. Well, then they turn around and say, no, that's the only one that counts. And then the tongues that they speak in are not human languages. They're referencing Acts 2. But Acts 2, those were human languages. I have yet to hear any Pentecostal today claim that when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they began to proclaim the mighty works of God in flawless Bantu or German, or Russian, or Mandarin Chinese. So I think that that is something different. I disagree with it. I just disagree with it. So here comes my people uh, who are gonna be mad at me. The modern reformed. And we're not the only ones that do this. Uh, Baptists take this view, many of them, whether Calvinistic or Arminian, the Evangelical Free Church does. I talked to a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor yesterday. I said, hey, what do you guys think of this? He's like, mm-mm. Okay, so um, those folks say, forget it. There's so much nonsense and problem on the other side over there. Uh, we're gonna just take this whole issue off the table, and the way that we're gonna do that is that we're gonna believe what happened in Acts 2 and in a couple of other places was totally unique because it was a transitional time and God was doing new things, but now we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit when we believe savingly on Jesus. There's no second experience to be looked for, although there are many times in the Christian life where the Spirit graciously works in us and ministers to us, we ought not look for this second experience. And so in the, I'm just calling it the modern reform because it wasn't always the reform view, but a lot of you are going to go, okay, now I understand this. You believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ, you get everything you're going to get then, and then your life is a slow process of sanctification where it gradually rises. Okay? You gradually come into more holiness and, and more power. All right? Now, for me, this view is attractive in some ways because it heads off a lot of error that seems to accompany this issue. And it also highlights the need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which the Bible tells us we have to do. And I actually used to hold this view, but I changed my mind for a few reasons. And I changed it when I began studying the scriptures. I actually started a sermon series on this in Sturgis the last summer before I left. And I had to stop because I just couldn't, I, I had to really absorb the conclusions I was reaching and it was, you know, I was wrestling with it and I wasn't sure. But, but here are the reasons why I, why I think this view falls short. First of all, it makes almost all the verses in the New Testament which tell us anything about the baptism of the Spirit or the sealing of the Spirit, it makes them totally irrelevant to the church after 100 AD because we automatically get it when we believe on Jesus. And so it's almost like dispensationalism in that respect. 
Second of all, it makes scriptures like Luke 11.13 completely unintelligible. And you don't have to turn to Luke 11.13 if you don't want to, but you can if you want to. And I'll tell you what it says here in a minute when I find it. Luke 11.13. And Jesus is basically saying, now, you guys who are evil give good gifts to your children. What about your heavenly father? Verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He will give the Holy Spirit. Now, if baptism in the Holy Spirit came at conversion, you're not asking at conversion for the Holy Spirit. You're asking for Jesus. You're asking for justification. You're exercising saving faith in Jesus. Is the Spirit operational in that? Absolutely, but are you saying, Give me the Holy Spirit. No, you're saying give me Jesus. Well, when then, if, if, if the baptism happens then, when would we ever say, please, Father, give me the Holy Spirit? So that makes that verse unintelligible to me. If you get all the Holy Spirit's gifts automatically when you believe on Jesus and are saved, on what occasion would you ever ask for the Holy Spirit? Number three, it doesn't account for the amazing society-transforming lives of the early church in the post-apostolic era. If all these things supposedly ceased with the apostles, what accounts for the amazing growth of the church in the first four centuries of the church? Fourthly, it doesn't account for the amazing society-transforming lives of the people of God when revivals happen. Fifthly, it runs, and I think this is the worst one, it runs the very real risk of quenching the Spirit of God, which Paul says you can do. Indeed, it makes quenching the Spirit virtually certain since he's not allowed by definition to do anything he might wish to do that is outside of my comfort zone and outside of my doctrinal grid. Now, I have put up a video on Facebook, a sermon by a man named Duncan Campbell who was one of the main evangelists during the, the, the revival on the Isle of Lewis. And there's a, there's a little three-minute clip in there that I just wanna, I want us to listen to together. Master, I think I ought to tell you a rather amusing incident. We weren't uh, in favor with all. There was a certain section of the Christian church that bitterly opposed me. Oh, I was a mad Arminian. And uh, I was teaching strange doctrine. When I was proclaiming that the baptism of the Holy Ghost was a definite subsequent experience to convert. Now, my dear people, I believe that. It may cross your path, but... There it is. I want to say this in passing, that I believe it was because the people of Lewis grasped that truth that we can say today we know practically nothing of backsliding from that gracious movement of years ago. It is because they entered into the fullness. Because of that, a stream of men and women going out into full-time service. Well, we're singing at this meeting when I saw the door of a cottage opening and I saw an old woman coming out with a black shawl on her. 
And she walked over. And she got a hold of one of the elders. A tall man. A strong man. A heavy man. And she said to him, I wish you people would go home and let people sleep. I can still see that dear man going over to her and taking her by the shoulders and shaking her and saying, Woman, get away home. You've been asleep long enough. But I think I ought. All right. So did you catch that? I know the ac- that's why we had a transcript. The, the accent is horrible and the sound quality is worse. It's not horrible. Sorry, Donald. The Olive Lewis accent, is, I've got a friend from Lewis. The accent is not horrible. It's hard for Americans to understand. Now, Duncan Campbell said, I was teaching, I was called a mad Arminian. Why? Because they saw Wesley and Wesleyan perfectionism in this. That wasn't what he was teaching, but that's what they saw. He was teaching strange doctrines because I taught that the, whole, the baptism of the Holy Ghost was a subsequent experience to conversion. Now, the interesting thing is those people who opposed him, and they opposed him bitterly, those ministers in those churches who did, they just saw no fruit from the revival at all. None. The whole island is being transformed. Population of more than 30,000 people being transformed. But here's these islands of deadness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit wasn't going to do something? No, because they resisted it. They quenched the Spirit. So you see, this can be resisted and we can miss out on things that God has for us. You can put out the fire. And there were amazing things that happened during that time. There were extraordinary uh, extraordinary phenomena, but there were no tongues. There were visions. I mean, people record walking out of a meeting at midnight and seeing an apparition of of a naval ship in a field. Nobody knew what it meant. I still don't know what it means. Everybody saw it. Nobody said a word. They just kind of walked past, but everybody saw it. So here you have this apparition witnessed and testified to by hundreds of people, all agreeing on the details. There were amazing things that happened then. People, young people at a dance at 11 o'clock at night, having a good time, all of a sudden they stop and they stream out and they go to find the church. Nobody told them there was a meeting. Nobody invited them to the meeting. Nobody said anything, but there was, and, and, here, and here they come. And they're ready for God. And God comes down, and they get converted. Now, you can't explain that kind of thing, naturally. Twitter didn't do that. It didn't exist. And the same kind of thing, but there were no tongues. The same kind of thing could be said in 1904 of the revival in Wales. The same could also be said of the 1859 revival, which took place, started in New York City and took place all over the English-speaking world, spread through Canada, spread to England and Wales and Scotland and Ireland. Nor were those things, the, the gifts of tongues, evident in the first Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s or in the second Great Awakening in the 1820s and 30s. So the ditch on the left side of the road is to believe in this second work of the Holy Spirit, which we can call the sealing of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit, but then to add things to it or to claim things for it, which are contrary to Scripture. The ditch on the right side of the road, my old ditch, is to simply deny that this baptism or this sealing is a second work of grace and to simply locate it all at the beginning of the Christian life when you believe on Jesus 
Now, what happens if you drive into the left ditch? Well, you, you risk a life of frustration, error, and perhaps even heresy. One of the things that we have got to be aware of is that you can have experiences that are real and that are powerful, but you must not simply assume that those experiences are the work of God. And I think that's exactly what happened in the, in the 1906 revival at the Azusa Street Revival. Here we had these experiences. Does it fit with the scripture? Not really. We'll grind the scripture to fit. Make the scripture square with my experience. Well, your experience could have been God. Your experience could have been the devil. Your experience could have been mass psychology. Your experience could have been too much broccoli the night before. You know, something, something physical. And so we have these experiences and we think, God must be speaking in the experience. Maybe, maybe not. How do you check it? With the scripture, with doctrine. I spent a, a great deal of my life, from time to time, I would have, I don't know how to describe it, but this kind of this crushing sense that something was wrong, and it would just kind of come upon me, and, and I couldn't quite articulate it, but it just made me want to curl up into a little ball sometimes, and, and my first thought was, this is God. God's giving me special communication that something bad is going on somewhere. After about 10 years, I concluded, no, because none of the things I'm concerned about, no bad thing has ever happened. I think this is just some phenomenon in my brain. It was an experience, it was a powerful one, but I, I don't know what it is. But I quit worrying about it. So when it happens, I'm just like, yeah, there it is again. I'm gonna go have lunch. And I ignore it because I don't think it's valid. I don't think it's something God's trying to show me. I have had experiences where God definitely speaks to me. And I know it's him. And I follow it. And it works. But it's always got to be squared with the scripture. If you drive into the right to the ditch on the right side, you risk a powerless life of cold, dead orthodoxy and quenching the spirit. Few people will be saved. Revival probably won't come. How then shall we avoid the ditches? I propose the following. Now this is the view that was put forth by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And... Uh, and others, uh, Duncan Campbell clearly took a version of this view. This is a view that was promulgated by the Puritans, um, in particular Th uh, Thomas Godwin. This is the view that has been the experience of some very godly people who are outside of our tradition. For instance, Moody, the Moody Bible Institute, that was, Moody was a guy. You believe on the Lord Jesus savingly. You get a measure of the Spirit. You are growing in Christ, but it's uneven and slow. And then comes the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and you are brought up to a higher level where you continue the climb. So it involves both Spirit-assisted effort and a gracious, singular work of the Spirit of God. And what I'm saying is this is not automatic. It will happen if you want it, and it won't happen if you don't want it. It will come if you seek it, and it will not if you don't, more than likely. Now, I first encountered this view, as I said, 20 years ago in the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones by Ian Murray, and uh, though I confess I did not thoroughly understand it at the time or what the issues were. As I said, this is also the view 
of Duncan Campbell. In this view, the Christian's saved. He has a measure of the spirit at conversion, and the and the the Christian enters into a process of sanctification, which is a lifelong process, but it's an arduous process, and progress in holiness is slow, and transformation into Christ's likeness is slow, and it's uneven. It's very much two steps forward and one step back, and sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back, and then the Holy Spirit comes in power, and this sealing, this baptism occurs. Now, it may occur very quickly after conversion, or it may occur a long time after conversion, or it may never occur. And it doesn't mean the person's not saved. But it occurs. And the old things that tempted you lose their attractiveness. And you find yourself in a position where you're sitting there with your phone or on the internet or whatever, and here comes the temptation, and uh, you know that you could return to the mud and the mire and wallow in them, but you actually don't want to, and it would actually require some effort to go back to it. Whereas before, it required strenuous effort to avoid it. One of the chief things that happens, and we're going to unpack this in more fullness next week, happens in the mind, happens in the heart. Before the sealing of the Holy Spirit, the Christian suffers from a divided mind and a double mind. James calls it that in James chapter 1, a a double-minded man who's unstable in all of his ways. And and the Christian suffers from a divided heart. Now, the, the mind and the heart work together. The heart is the seat of the desires. The mind is the seat of thought. And the mind functions mostly by holding things up, concepts and objects, for the heart to look at. And, and, and the mind says to the heart, what do you think? And the heart says, I like it. Let, let's pursue that. Or the mind holds something up to the heart and says, what do you think? And the heart's like, oh, nah, uh-uh. We're, we're going we're gonna <laughs> to send that away, please. When the unsealed Christian contemplates the things of God... The heart is attracted to them in one degree or another, and the life orients itself towards the pursuit of the things of God. But then along comes the devil, and he wants to derail that, so he shows the mind worldly, sinful things. And the divided heart says, ooh, I like that too. And it, and it resets the course of the life towards sin. And the devil can either blind you at the level of your mind so that you fail to see sin as sin, and you thoughtlessly pursue it, or he can entice you at the level of desire by putting sinful things in your mind to show to your heart and then entice you. And when the desires of, sin, of the heart for sinful things are greater than or equal to the desires for godliness, you will live a frustrated, erratic, weak, sin-ridden life. If your mind is not enlightened, you will walk in sin and not even realize you're doing it. Your wife will, right? Your husband will, your kids will know, your boss or your employees will, but very often you'll be clueless. And your heart will pull you one way, and then it'll pull you another. And your confused mind will say, well, this might be good, or this might be true, and then it'll pull you another way. And so you end up with this unstable, erratic course of life. But when the Holy Spirit seals you, he makes an immediate difference by increasing your desire for God and godliness and enlightening your mind. That's what David is describing in Psalm 86, 11, which was our call to worship, which says, teach me your way, O Lord, mind, that I may walk in your truth. 
unite my heart, or other versions say it even better, give me an undivided heart to fear your name. So, in other words, let my mind be enamored with the things that are true and good, and then put a desire in my heart that is stronger for the things that are good than the things that are bad. Unite my heart, stitch it back together, orient it around one thing, undivide it. And as a result of that rapid improvement in the heart's desires and the mind's perception, the process of sanctification, of growing more Christ-like, is easier. There's still more climbing to do, but God gives you a nice elevator ride up part of the mountain. That's what happened to Peter as we explored last week. He went from a frightened rabbit to a bold lion, not as a result of a long process, but as a result of a point-in-time action of the Spirit of God. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, pastor, that's a wonderful theory. Do you have any scriptural warrant for this? Is there any passage of scripture that shows ordinary people, not apostles, post-Pentecost, being saved, and then later receiving the Holy Spirit in a perceivable, dramatic way that everyone can see and that doesn't involve tongues? So we can crush all the arguments here at once if that passage exists. Because if there is, that's the road between the ditches. That's the one that covers all the facts. That's the one that solves all the problems. Turn back to our text for today, Acts chapter 8. And we're not going to spend a great deal of time on this because it is so self-explanatory now that we've set the stage here. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. We note here and I'm just reminding you of what I said before. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. So let's read it again. Nah, we read it before. In the interest of time, we're not going to read it again. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that it says that they believed on the Lord Jesus and were baptized. We find that in verses 12 and 13. But when they, that is the Samaritans, believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. They believed. Now you remember, no one can believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ without the help of the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. That's not merely a Calvinistic doctrine, by the way. It's an Arminian doctrine as well. The debate is not about whether the Spirit is at work. The debate is about who gets the help and how much help they need in order to be saved. Sometime later, we're not told how long, but probably days, maybe even weeks, the apostles come down. Peter and John, in particular, we're told, come down. And they come down with a specific purpose in mind. They come down to pray with them and lay hands on them so that, quote, they might receive the Holy Spirit. And this was necessary because the Holy Spirit, we're told, had not fallen on them. So this is very clearly a subsequent experience to baptism and conversion. The Holy Spirit had not fallen on them. We're not told why. And time does not permit us to explore the possibilities. Perhaps 
We'll get to that another time. It probably has something to do, as I mentioned, for Jesus, uh, with Jesus' plan for them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And at each one of those concentric rings, there's a definitive move of the Holy Spirit, which everybody recognizes. It goes, yep, we're on the right path here. This is where Jesus has taken us. Okay? But it says then in verse 12 that they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So these ordinary Samaritans, not apostles, are undergoing a specialized experience to equip them for something uh, that only an apostle can do. So um, there goes all this, this is for special people thing. These are not apostles, they get something that the apostles got, and, uh, and so it wasn't just for the apostles. So that part of the reformed, modern reformed argument is out to lunch. And by the way, the modern reformed argument has only been there for about 150 years. Um, secondly, it is subsequent both to saving belief and to baptism. So there goes the assertion that you get all the gifts of the Holy Spirit when you believe, which is also made by the modern reformed. And it also is plainly observable to all. Um, because Simon, who was probably a false convert, sees it and is amazed by it, and he tries to buy it. And Peter doesn't take very kindly to that. So that's a, a third blow to the modern Reformed argument. Um, because under their teaching, the baptism of the Holy Spirit's not observable, it's silent. It happens to everybody. A seal has to be observable to everyone, or it can't function as a seal. Now, I think I've already laid to rest the Wesleyan perfectionism and the, the Keswick view, but what about Pentecostalism's assertion that tongues are the only valid sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Do we notice anything missing in this passage? At Pentecost, they had tongues. Later on, after this passage, with Cornelius, tongues are mentioned. With the disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus, you had tongues. With the Samaritans, tongues are conspicuously absent. We're not told what happened, what gifts were present. We're simply told that it was powerful and observable. And that silence, I think, is deafening. God did a different thing there. And that ought not to surprise anyone. Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 12 that the Spirit gives all kinds of gifts and that tongues is just one of them. And it's actually, he always numbers it last. It's least important. I would also add by way of supporting evidence that this twofold action of the Holy Spirit is curiously preserved in the ancient practices of both the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. These are, of course, wrong in how they think the person receives these things. Uh, they think that if you're in Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy, everything is conveyed by sacraments. They're like a medicine. You take it and you get what's in, what's, what the sacrament is promised. And so they think these things are conveyed by sacraments. But they preserve exactly the distinction we see here between salvation and the giving of the Holy Spirit. They baptize, which they believe grants salvation. We don't. And then there's this anointing with oil called chrismation or confirmation, which they believe is a divinely sanctioned way of substituting for the apostolic laying on of hands to convey the Holy Spirit. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they're right close together most of the time. You're baptized and then you're chrismated. And the Roman Catholic Church has them years apart generally, but they're separate and they're recognized as separate. Now, I don't think they're right in how they're applying that, but they have from ancient times pres pre uh, preserved that distinction between those two things. 
So let's bring the cookies down to the lower shelf to finish things off. If my unfolding of the scripture is correct, and you have to be the judge of that for yourselves, if the vast majority of us in this church are saved, but not sealed, myself included, and if this sealing is generally something which we need to be aware of and to long for in order to receive, and if when a small group of people come together and seek it, very often true revival breaks out and spreads like wildfire and transforms both the church and the community as a result, should we not at least consider the idea that we should make the individual and corporate seeking of the Spirit through persistent prayer, earnest prayer, should we not at least consider the idea of making that our top priority as a congregation? If we wanna make a difference, if we want our church to be different, if we want people around us to come to Christ who we care about, shouldn't we maybe Consider the possibility that God is calling us to humble ourselves, submit to him, and beg him for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus says in Luke eleven three, 3, he will give if we ask him. People keep wandering around the church going, what's our purpose? Why does tabernacle exist? What should we be doing? How about this for an answer? Seek the Holy Spirit's baptism. We want this church to be full and flourishing. Seek the Holy Spirit's baptism. We want lives changed. We want families healed. Seek the Spirit's baptism. I want to know great joy in the Lord and in my salvation. Seek the Holy Spirit's baptism. I want lost people to be saved. Seek the Spirit's baptism. I want racial reconciliation. I want real justice in society. Not the fake Marxist stuff and not the other stuff that's been going on. I want real healing. Seek the Holy Spirit's baptism. We want to see our young people soundly converted and strengthened and equipped to take the gospel into a subsequent generation so that the church in America doesn't die like it's done in Europe. Seek the Holy Spirit's baptism. Jeremiah 29 and 13, and with this I close. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me, with all your heart. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's stand, church. Mm -hmm.